Heavenly Father, please would you help us this morning to be equipped, armed, strengthened for the battle that we face in the Christian life. By your word, by your spirit, Lord, that we would stand firm. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you'll indulge me by letting me start with a little bit of history this morning. Um, Something that I think will help to illustrate the urgency of Paul's call to arms in Ephesians 6. Um, So, on the 30th of September, 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned from Germany declaring peace for our time. Hitler's uh, expansionist goals threatened the peace of Europe at that time. But through an agreement, which Hitler signed, Neville Chamberlain signed, others signed, Germany was given control over part of Czechoslovakia, and it seemed that the danger of another continental war had been averted, at least for now. And Chamberlain and very many in his generation were understandably desperate to avoid such a war. They had lived, they had fought through the First World War, and they remembered only too well how terrible it was. But in their desperation to avoid another confrontation, they allowed a fearsome enemy to gather strength. And World War II was almost certainly longer and more bitter as a result. So in 1940 to 41, France fell, and Britain and Russia came very close to defeat. The bravery and the sacrifice of our soldiers, our sailors, our pilots during those years was great. But from another angle, it was only a series of of tactical errors by Hitler and his generals that kept our hope alive. It was their decision not to keep the tanks advancing and move in on us at Dunkirk and crush the soldiers on the beach. It was their decision not to persist with bombing our airfields in the Battle of Britain. It was their decision to open up a second front invading Russia in 1941 when they hadn't yet put Britain out of action. And we must thank God that Not only the king's heart, but the Fuhrer's heart is like a stream of water in his hand, which he turns any way he will. For if the Lord had not done those things, if he had not thwarted the counsel of Hitler and his generals, Europe could look very different today, and our history could be very different. And that is a lesson for us as we come to Paul's concluding words in Ephesians 6. And that's because we are at war. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. If we belong to Jesus Christ today, if we are part of his people, his bride no less, we are at war. Once, Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 2, we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Which is to say we were in the devil's kingdom under his rule and God's wrath. 
But we saw in chapter 2 in verses 5 to 7 that God, in his great love for us, gave us new life. He raised us up out of the devil's kingdom and seated us in the heavenly realms, in Jesus' kingdom, where we are now citizens. But do you think the devil is happy about this? Do you think the devil likes having his kingdom plundered? Do you think the devil who who burns with jealousy at God's glory, his power, his authority, do you think he likes it when we start to give God our love and our praise and our obedience? No, he does not. So we shouldn't be surprised when Paul says in Ephesians 6 in verse 11 that the devil is against us with schemes to harm us. We know that we struggle with the sinful desires of our own hearts. We know that we struggle with opposition from people around us who who hate one or other parts of the Bible's message. But do we remember on a Monday morning that our struggle is not just with ourselves and is not ultimately against other people? It is not against flesh and blood, as Paul says in verse 12. And of course, human beings are deceived and used by the devil in his purposes. But ultimately, our struggle is against spiritual rulers, authorities, and powers, even in the heavenly realms. The devil and his minions are warring against us, trying to make the Christian life as hard as possible and Christian belief as ridiculous, as implausible as possible, so that we give in. The devil does not want us to be at peace with God. He does not want Jews and Gentiles from every nation to be at peace with one another in the church. He doesn't want us to walk in the good deeds that God has prepared for us. He doesn't want us to speak the truth in love to each other and build each other up. He doesn't want us to be pure and free from even a hint of sexual sin. And he doesn't want us to be light, exposing sin in the world around us by our example. And he definitely doesn't want us to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. The devil would be happiest if we miserably failed at everything Paul has taught in this letter. And I don't know about you, but that is not how I think most of the time. In our secularized society, I find it so easy to think that my struggles as a Christian are mainly with myself, with my own weakness, and my own sinful desires, maybe with a bit of pressure thrown in from other people here and there. So I either live with a peacetime mentality, as if there is no opposition from outside of me, or if I do feel embattled, It results in a kind of overblown, misdirected sense of resentment and anger towards other human beings or the social trends of our society. What I don't do a lot of the time is engage in the battle against my spiritual enemies. I don't even remember that there is a battle there, quite frankly. 
So I'm lulled into a false sense of security, which is probably another of the devil's weapons. And when I am aware of the battle, I am too easily scared. I'm scared by my own smallness and the apparent power of the enemy. Or else, I love my comfort so much that I don't want to fight. I just want to stick my head in the sand and pretend the battle isn't there. And I wonder, could that be you, at least in part? Could it be that many of us, like Neville Chamberlain and his colleagues in 1938, are unaware of the danger or unwilling to fight? And could it be that as a result, we are weaker and the battle to stand firm as a Christian is harder because we are so unprepared? By following Christ, we have entered a kingdom under siege. We are at war whether we like it or not. So we must be prepared for that battle. But the wonderful news in Ephesians is that God has not left us defenseless. Far from it. So firstly, we need to remember that we need to remember the power of our commanding officer. If you flick back to Ephesians 1 verse 19 for a moment, you'll see that Paul prays that his readers may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That is a prayer we need to pray, that we may know that incomparably great power so that we would be courageous. We need to know, we need to have confidence in God's power. And what is that power? Verse 19 again, it's the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, placing all things under his feet for the church. Did you notice how our captain, Jesus, compares to the devil? Jesus is far above him. So many different ways Paul is saying that he is above. He is above everything. He's above this power. He's above that authority. The devil included. Jesus is far above him. At the very right hand of God. And why has God raised him there? For the church. For us. So that we would not be destroyed. But grow up to maturity. And reveal the very wisdom of God in reconciling Jews and Gentiles from every nation and revealing his wisdom by unifying us under the headship of Christ. That's what we saw in chapters 1 to 3. And it's that mighty power, God's Christ-exalting, devil-defeating, peacemaking power that is at work in us That is the mighty power which Paul calls us to be strengthened by in chapter 6, in verse 11. And this is the key command which sums up the final section. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Why? So that we can stand firm. 
and resist the devil and grow up as the church that God has made us and calls us to be through the rest of Ephesians. But how? How can we arm ourselves with God's strength? That's what I want to focus on for the rest of the sermon. And the answer is there, verse, verse um, 11, verse 13, verse 14, by putting on the full armour of God so that we can stand. And this is extraordinary because God has given us his very own armour. Let me read you a bit of Isaiah, chapter 59, verses 15 to 17. Truth is, found, is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his, uh, his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now that's one of a number of passages in Isaiah which describes God and his Messiah, who we realize are the same person in Jesus, as putting on armor to accomplish salvation and restore righteousness to a people and a world that is utterly corrupted by sin. Jesus accomplished our salvation by arming himself with perfect righteousness and a well-instructed tongue like a sharpened sword. Just think how his words repelled the devil as he was tested for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. And think of how those same words turn the most hardened sinners back to walk in God's ways with rejoicing. And think of how his perfect righteousness acts both as our model and as the thing which allowed him to die in our place, bearing our punishment for us. Jesus armed himself so that he could become the perfect saviour for us. And it's that same armour, his armour, that he is giving to us so that we can stand firm against the devil's onslaught. Now, isn't that a privilege? Isn't that something to draw confidence from? Jesus gives us his very own armour. So how do we put it on? Well, I confess this is something I've, I've struggled to grasp, to know how to apply for many years, because to my mind, the armour has just seemed quite abstract, hard to ground in daily life. I think from what I've been able to do, sort of reflecting on it over the last couple of weeks, that what most of it comes down to is really quite simple. It, it is knowing and holding to the Bible, to God's word. It's letting that truth shape our worldview so that we can spot the devil's lies and repel them with, with scripture. It's taking to heart and praying in light of God's promises 
so that we are guarded against discouragement and fear. Promises like strength for the weak, comfort for the brokenhearted, new mercy each day to provide our daily bread and forgive our sins again and again and again. It's keeping a firm grip on the hope of our salvation, the hope that Paul spelt out in chapter 1, so that we don't give up when life is hard, but remember that whatever we lose now for Jesus' sake, we have and we will have so much more in his eternal kingdom. So basically, much of the armour comes from letting God's word dwell richly in us, as Paul says in Colossians. We need that word for our own sake, for the unity of the church, and for the sake of the lost, so that we're ready to hold out the offer of peace with God to those who don't know Jesus yet. So what I'm not going to do now is sort of go through line by line and give a detailed explanation of each part of the armour. So do feel free to come to me with questions after if there's a specific part you're confused about. I'm not guaranteeing I'll have all the answers, but maybe we can learn together. Um, What I am going to do is give three examples of how we can put that armour on in daily life. So firstly, maybe this seems like old news, but we need to hear it again and again. We need to have God's word, the Bible, front and centre in our lives. As we've already seen this morning, the Bible is what tells us there is a war on for a start. The Bible gives us our call to action so that we're not lulled into a false sense of security. But more than that... God's word helps us to see the battlefield clearly. It reshapes our whole minds to view the world how God sees it. The Bible shows us what's true, what's false, what's good, what's evil, who we are, what God is really like, what his promises for us are, what hope he offers us. And we need to tap into this every day if we are going to stand against the devil's lies. Do you remember Genesis 3? Satan uses deception to tempt Eve into sin. He misrepresents God and he misrepresents the consequences of sin so that Eve resents God and finds sin attractive. And the devil's tactics haven't changed. He uses news reporting, advertising, films and TV and YouTube, social media, the creative arts, scientific theories, and all sorts of things to misrepresent God and misrepresent the world around us. He will use these things to tell us that God is mean or oppressive, or just not interested in our lives to try and stamp out our love for God, our trust in him. He'll use these things to tell us that maybe God doesn't even exist and we need to make our own meaning and find our true selves by looking inward or look to other people and possessions and experiences and achievements for our happiness and security. 
He'll use these things to present sin as harmless, pleasurable, even necessary. Because there's no other way out of the situation you're in, he would say. And he'll also use these things to tell us that the cost of following Jesus is just too painful. And the opposition is just too powerful so that we give in. These lies come at us left, right, and center every day. And that means we need to renew our grip on God's truth every day so that we're ready to spot those deceptions instead of just being carried away on the current. That doesn't necessarily mean that reading the Bible first thing every morning is what you absolutely must do, though it's a great way to start if you possibly can, even if it's just for 10 minutes. But if you're not a morning person, or if your job or your kids make that impossible, can I still ask, how are you going to get God's truth into your minds, into your hearts, from early on each day? Why not listen to some favorite worship albums or a playlist over breakfast? Why not listen to sermons or a Christian podcast in the car on your drive to work? If you struggle to read Christian books, download an audiobook version. Put it on while you're washing up. And if you, if you want a recommendation for a specific book on a specific topic, ask me or Dan or Kitty or Matt or someone. <laughs> and above all, make the most of the ordinary means of grace that God has given his church. His word as it is read and preached and prayed and sung on a Sunday, as it is shared by brothers and sisters through fellowship, as it is tasted even in the Lord's Supper or experienced through baptism. God has given us these things for our good. These are the main ways that he intends for us to grow and stand firm and be armed and equipped. Have you stopped using them weekly since the pandemic began? And have you potentially left your heart unguarded, if so? To be clear, I'm, what I'm not saying is that we should never engage with secular culture or that we can't enjoy music or art or films or other things produced by non-Christians. In God's common grace, we often find much to give thanks for in them. I'm just saying that if we want to spot the devil's lies and prevent our thoughts and desires becoming slowly but surely more and more worldly, and above all, if we want our hearts to remain captivated by God's beauty and thankful for his mercy, then we need to prepare ourselves with God's truth each day. That needs to be one of the voices among the many that fill our minds, preferably one of the first. One of the ways I'm having to do this is by learning by heart the promise in 2 Corinthians 12 that God's strength is made perfect in my weakness and praying for help to trust that each morning because the devil keeps presenting me with my own inadequacy for ministry. And if I am not confident in that promise of God, I will give up. 
So we need to have God's truth front and centre. Secondly, I want to focus on the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14. Now, a, a Roman soldier's breastplate, like modern body armour, was there to protect the torso, protect the vital organs from harm. But how does righteousness guard us? And whose righteousness, anyway? Well, back in chapter 4, in verses 22 to 24, if you want to flick there, Paul said that we should put off the old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. So at least in part, Paul means that our own growth in righteousness, as we live out our new identity, walking in God's ways, that arms us and protects us against the devil. If we put it the other way around, if we are lax in our personal righteousness, whether that's uncontrolled anger, or slander and gossip, or dabbling in porn, or sexual fantasies, we arm the devil with more sticks to beat us with. And it's not like he's short of sins and failings to pick up on and assault our guilty consciences with anyway. But the more we tolerate sin in our lives, the more we arm the devil against us, and the harder it becomes to believe that God loves us because our sin is so overwhelming. So personal righteousness is something to strive and wrestle in prayer for. It means doing all that is in our, our power to flee from temptations to sin, rather than keeping them close because we find that TV program or that person's company just too enjoyable to cut the link with. It means breaking sin's grip on us by confessing it quickly to trusted brothers and sisters. Otherwise, it festers and grows in the darkness of concealment, and we grow ever more scared of the consequences of being exposed. And personal righteousness also requires, again, coming prayerfully back to God's word. Because it is only as the gospel graciously reminds us of what our sin deserved, of how ugly, enslaving, and destructive our sin is, that we start to find sin repulsive instead of alluring and attractive. It's only as God imp impresses his love on our hearts again and again through his word and through the suffering of the cross that we learn to trust him, that we desire to please him. And it's only as his word re-educates our minds about what is for our good and what is for our flourishing that we actually begin to want to walk in God's ways. So this side of heaven, we, we need the gospel to melt our hearts and to reorient our minds again and again. That is the only way we are going to grow in righteousness. And equally, we need that same gospel to remind us every day that ultimately it is Christ's righteousness and not ours that makes us acceptable to God. Our own efforts will never be enough, however hard we battle, though we must battle. So maybe learning a memory verse like Romans 8 verse 1, 
is what you need to fight back against the devil's lie that this time you've just sinned too badly and God isn't going to forgive you. The gospel says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we need his righteousness too. Thirdly, and much more briefly, we arm ourselves through constant prayer. As Paul says in verse 18, pray in the spirit on all occasions. And at least in part, I think what that means is both praying according to the spirit's promptings and leadings, but equally praying according to the word he has inspired. Let the word shape your priorities for prayer. Pray the things that we've been learning in Ephesians for the unity of the church. And perhaps especially that we would grasp the height and depth and breadth and width of Christ's love for us. It is God's work in us through the Spirit that strengthens us for battle, helps us to keep believing his word, and renews our hope. So do you pray for those things daily? Even if you can only manage five minutes with your morning coffee or tea, can you pray the Lord's Prayer daily to ask his kingdom to come in your heart and ask that he would lead you not into temptation but deliver you from evil, deliver you from the devil's assaults? Prayer is what makes all of the rest of the armour effective. Even if that prayer is like the father in Mark 9 who says, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. That is a good prayer to pray. Finally, and this is where I'll stop, don't view this as a solo project. We don't put on the armour purely as individuals. We help each other to do this as a church by praying for each other, by praying for those who preach, like Paul requests, and speaking the truth in love to each other. Why does Paul send them Tychicus in verse 22? Well, at least in part, it's so that he may encourage them. God uses the encouragements of our brothers and sisters to help us stay in the battle. So wherever it is that the devil is attacking you most right now, Talk to a brother or sister about it. Don't wait to be invited round by them. Ask them, can we go for a coffee? Can we have a phone call this evening? Invite them round to yours for dinner, perhaps. Talk about it so that they can pray for you and encourage you. Because we don't fight this battle alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed when we think about it, which isn't very often, that you have given us your own armour to defend us, to arm us. And Lord, how much we need it. How many are the deceptions that come at us day after day and the 
the different loves and loyalties that compete for our hearts. How many different means the devil uses to, to subtly draw us away from you. Well, not so subtly sometimes. Please, Lord, help us to be aware that this battle is going on. And please help us together as a church to support one another in that battle, to help one another put on the armour, to use it by praying and speaking to one another for our good. Please, Lord, help each one of us to find ways to put your word front and centre in our lives. Lord, please help us in the battle for righteousness. We can be so discouraged by our failures and fail to see the growth that you have produced in us at times. Please encourage us by that. And please help us to hold fast to your righteousness as our, our ultimate security. Lord, sustain us. Help us to fight. And help us to fight with hope and good cheer because of your mighty power. Amen.